Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer takes a moment and focuses on what the Bible calls men to be. We see in our culture today mentalities that try to rob men of what they were created to be. Today we find out it's okay to be a man. If you are in the Ashland Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information now, you can talk, contact us at Unity. We'll follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, It's Okay to Be a Man. up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at this morning that it's okay to be a man. And that sounds kind of like an odd sermon title unless you've been here at our Mother's Day message as well, it's okay to be a woman. And the reason we have to preach messages like this is because we're in a culture today that is trying to destroy what it looks like to be a man or to be a woman. Instead, trying to favor this homogenous gray zone where there is no distinction, no male or female of any kind. No gender roles, no gender distinction. Now, when you mention a man, it's going to conjure up all kinds of ideas in your mind. Maybe your mind goes to what some people portray as a hyper-masculine kind of figure, sort of a 1990s home improvement Tim Allen figure. You know what I'm saying? The guy who will, you know, take a lawnmower engine and hook it up to the garbage disposal and mulch tree branches, you know, in the kitchen. You know, maybe that's your idea. Some guy, some big hairy guy grunting, har, 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 you know, and all that. Uh, and that maybe is what you think of masculinity. Uh, do you have to be that to be a man? Do, I mean, do you have to shop at Cabela's, Outdoor World, and, you know, a tractor supply to be a man? No. Now, I'd argue you might be happier if you did, you know, but you don't have to be. That isn't what makes a man a, a man, is this hyper-masculinized version of, of manhood. But this world right now doesn't like any concept that men and women are different whatsoever. You know, whether, whether there are direct attacks against manhood, there are terms like toxic masculinity, and yes, are there these caricatures of men, you know, who are these hyper-aggressive, dominant alpha male types? Yes, and we don't condone that as healthy, but there is a direct attack even in our language against men. If you watch TV, men are often portrayed as silly, stupid, uh, weak, ineffectual, you know, I, my wife and I, sometimes we like to watch international spy thrillers, and whenever, you know, and anymore lately, they, they put women in these fighting roles, and whenever a man gets in a fight with a woman, I lean over to my wife and say, it's over. That man has no chance. <laughs> I mean, that's not how it is in real life, but I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, an, a, it's Hollywood trying to reverse things. If you look at Hollywood, you look at this world and its systems, you can see they're trying to take everything God created, and they're trying to flip it on its head. Male is female, female is male. Right is left, up is down, wrong is right. And that's just kind of the world that we live in. And so we need to go back to God's word to understand what masculinity is and, and to understand that it's okay to be both feminine and masculine, to be a man and a woman. It's okay to be a man. In fact, uh, we need to be coming back to traditional gender norms. I mean, if you just look around us in culture today, you can see that if you go to the store, you'll see that even men's fashion is trending more toward the feminine. Have you seen that? You know, things that are more traditionally female patterns and floral things and whatever, it's, it's, it's popular amongst men now. And nothing wrong with wearing flowers, guys. If you have a gardenia tie on today, I am not criticizing you. 
But it, it just tends toward that. Even in our mall here in Ashland, they're, they're selling male cosmetics. That's on the rise. You know, men, you know, trying to, I guess, beautify somehow. And, and even, I remember back in the 1990s, back in 94, Calvin Klein came out with a new scent called CK1. Everybody remember that? Nobody knew what to do with that because it was a scent that was neither supposed to be neither male or female. And we were just confused, like, who's buying this then? And we didn't know what to do with it back then, but we see culture right now really uh, building on and identifying with that concept. Yet, does God want very clear, distinct gender lines? Yes, he does. As we mentioned on Mother's Day, Deuteronomy 22.5, God says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment. God's not into cross-dressing. Now, this, by the way, this man, a woman should not wear a man's garment. It has nothing to do with women wearing pants. I realize that there's religious and cultures out there that say women can't wear pants, and they'll quote this verse. Understand that when this verse was written, men and women all wore dresses. Okay? So the only difference really between man's clothes and women's clothes was the fringe. The idea was that a man was not supposed to try to look like a woman, and a woman was not supposed to try to look like a man. And so whatever culturally expresses as masculine or feminine, God asks us to remain within those gender expectations. He says, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord God. So God is upset when we try to dress or look like or act like a gender opposite to what God assigned to us at birth. And yes, those words were selected very carefully. Who is it that assigns gender? Is it your doctor? It's the Lord, isn't it? As we mentioned on Mother's Day, you know, Psalm chapter 139, verse 13 says, for you, talking about God, formed my inward parts. And then he says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, there's that painstaking task of every cell, every molecule, every detail, the freckles you have, the moles that you have, men, that receding hairline that some of us have inherited, male pattern baldness. Uh, these are all things that God determined, not the least of which is whether or not we'd be born XX or XY, a male or female. God determined this. And so when we reject that, we're not simply rejecting societal norms of classification of male and female. We're rejecting the God who assigned this to us. The Bible's very clear. Now, he says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And the very next verse says his response to this. When he realizes God assigned my gender, he says this, I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. To say that somebody is fearfully made, it has to do, this is a word that relates to the fear of God. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, go watch our live stream. Not so live anymore, but go online and watch that. We talked about the fear of God. It's a recognition that God exists, that he's great and I'm not. He's mighty and I'm small. He's omniscient and I'm finite in my knowledge. Therefore, he knows better than me. And so to have the fear of God recognizes his lordship, his power. It submits to God and whatever God determines is good for my life. This person here, to say that he is fearfully made, recognizes God is the one that chose me to be male or female or even chose me to be big or tall or whatever I am. God chose to make me this way. He says I'm also wonderfully made. It's a word that means that we're carefully constructed, that we're distinct. He says, and he says, this my soul knows very well, but what does he say about his body when he recognizes God is my maker? He says, wonderful are your works. When you fear God, you know that God exists, you know that he is good, and whatever he does is ultimately for our good and his glory, and you accept that, you can come to a place of accepting how God made you. 
and you will say with God, wonderful are your works. God, I'm glad I'm a male, or I'm glad I'm a female. I'm glad you made me this way, God. Wonderful are your works. I praise your name. This is where God wants us to come to a place of as a society, that we recognize God created us, we accept that fact, and we say, I praise you, and wonderful are your works. If you don't say wonderful are your works, instead you begin to question God, you reject how God made you, will that have an effect on your heart? It absolutely does. It will change how you view the world, it'll change how you view God, and finally I'll say it'll change how you view yourself. If you don't accept how God made you, and I'm not even just talking about your gender, but specifically gender here today, if you don't accept how God made you, is that going to affect your mental health? People always try to figure out why amongst homosexuals and transgenders is suicide so high. And their argument is, it's because you and I as bigoted church people, unloving, unkind, unflinching people, won't reach out to them in love. I would argue, by the way, that we do. I can tell you right now some uh, example of one of our church members who witnessed to somebody in that lifestyle in a very loving and kind way. It's not that the church isn't accepting of homosexuality. It's that homosexuals and transgenders haven't learned to accept the fact that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. When you reject your creator, what do you ultimately have to reject? that which he has made. When we won't accept that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we won't accept ourselves, and then we become suicidal. And so it's not that society is not accepting of what God calls an abomination. It's that people haven't learned to accept God and the way that God created them. And God says we should be, see ourselves as fearfully and wonderfully made. And I realize, too, that in our society, we try to make a distinction between gender and sex. I remember as a kid, you know, asking a teacher as we're filling out forms, you know, what is, what is sex, what is gender? You know, and they'll say, oh, it just means gender, or it just means sex, it means male or female. It was very clear. It was, I, I lived a very simple childhood back when Fred Rogers was on TV. And so life made sense. I mean, my teachers still taught creation in high school uh, when I was going to school. But today we try to split gender and sex as if they're two different things. And people just say, oh, we have come to learn that gender is different than sex. And while that is sort of the mantra of today, can I tell you, it's not always been this way. And furthermore, it's not taught in the Bible. When God created man, I just want to point you to Genesis 2, 5 through 7 briefly. And it simply says here, the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So twice there, God refers to a biological male, a man. And then what does, he call, what does God call that man? His. You see, God doesn't see a distinction between sex and gender. Who you are chromosomally, is that a word? Who, are you, who you are in your chromosomes is who you are. It's who God chose to make you. And our pronouns remain the same because even our pronouns, if you will, from Genesis 2 are given by God. It's not something I can adopt for myself. And so when we demand our own pronouns today, it's that we demand to be our own God, to declare who we are, to create myself in my image according to my desires, according to my knowledge it's a form of idolatry where we worship oneself. Well, while the world tra rejects traditional male and female distinctions, the Bible actually sees male and female as different but good, opposite but corresponding to, and specifically today, we're going to look at Genesis as we did on Mother's Day, but we're going to look at three particular roles to which God has called man. The males of the room, the hairy ones without manners here today. So the first thing he calls us to is to become a laborer, a laborer. Genesis 2.15 begins, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do a couple of things, to work it 
and to keep it. Now, this word work literally means to till the ground. God made men to work hard. Outdoors, dirt under the fingernails, working hard, slaving away in the hot sun. To keep it indicates man's responsibility to protect it. He's a caretaker. He is to subdue the earth. And that is something that God has specifically given to the males. You say, why is that? Well, first of all, it says that God took the man. This is not a word for mankind. This is a word for male. Second of all, understand that at the time of the writing of Genesis 2.15, was the woman created yet? She was not. Genesis 2.22. You're going to have to wait a few verses. So before the woman was created, God created the man and gave him a command to work hard. Is that because God forgot the woman? I mean, when we read through Genesis 2 later on, we see it's not good for man to be alone. Is it that God says, oh, man, I knew there was something I forgot. I need to get back to my to-do list here. Yeah, woman, here we go. Adam, what do you got for her? You know? And then he takes a rib out and makes a woman. Is, is that what happened? No, but God being omniscient did things in that order for a very specific purpose because the rest of the animals, the cheetahs, the tigers, the elephants, the fish, he created the male and female, and then there, there they were. But with humans, he did things differently. He kind of, he, he changed that order of creation, and there's a reason for that, and the Bible relates to that later. So he creates man. By the way, when he talks about man, it's the Hebrew word Adam, Adam, it means soil, Ladies, your, your, your husband's name, it means dirt, okay? Uh, you might agree with that. Soil, Adam, the male, God took, it's a reminder of where God took Adam. He took him out of the ground, so he's specifically referring to the one that God took out of the dirt, and that's a male, and God gave him a responsibility to work the earth. And so men are commissioned to work outside the home, to work the ground, to be diligent and hard workers and providers for their home. Now, this is not to say that women don't work or can't work. And by the way, men, if, you, if you're married to a, a homemaker, we don't dare say that she doesn't have a job or that she doesn't work, that, be me, that demeans and belittles her work. Uh, she works in the home. She works diligently at the most important task of all, and that's the, the raising up of our children. But more than that, does it mean that women can't work outside the home? No, this is not a message saying that women can't work outside the home. You have Lydia, you have the Proverbs 31 woman. So this is not that. It's a woman's honor to work outside the home if she chooses to. But a man doesn't get that choice. God has called him into this role to be a laborer, to work hard, to work diligently, to provide for his family. You can even see in how God cursed Adam as to what one of Adam's roles are. See, when God cursed man and woman, he cursed them in areas that God intended them to uniquely play, a role, if you will. He, create, he cursed the woman in a certain way. He cursed the man in a certain way according to a role that God had granted man and woman to play. In Genesis 3, verse 17, it says, To Adam, dirt, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And so God didn't curse Adam in an area that wouldn't be relevant to him. God did not tell Adam, in, in pain you shall bring forth children. Not there, because that's not, that's Adam, I mean, men don't have babies. Can we say that? Men don't have babies. And so God didn't curse Adam in this area. What area did God curse Adam? He cursed him in the area that God expected Adam to fulfill. And that is the role of a worker, a tiller of the ground. Now, the question has to be asked, what if a man chooses not to work? Does man have that option, not to work outside the home, not to provide for his family? Now, I... I realize that there's some men who are providentially hindered physically, mentally, or whatever. Uh, we're not talking about that. We, our heart goes out to them. 
We hurt for them because we know they long to be productive. But man does not have that option. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has, what does your Bible say? Denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He's saying, unbelievers don't even do this. So if you have a man who is capable to work in some capacity, but would rather just sit at home and do nothing and not work at all, the Bible questions your faith. Is that fair to say? Because God has given us a very clear command as men to, to work hard outside the home, to provide for our families. He didn't say provide up here, man, so I'm not trying to give you an unattainable standard. You don't owe your family a Disney cruise every summer. You don't owe them a 3,500 square foot house. You don't own them a Mercedes in the driveway. But what we do do is we work diligently to provide for our family. What if a man doesn't work though? 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 11 says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, not a recommendation. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness and not busy at work. Once again, this work here is talking about physical, outdoor labor, tilling the ground. He's, it's, working, it's a term that refers to a vocation. If a man is not willing to work in a vocation of some kind, what we, what's he also not supposed to do? Eat. Now, you can't do that very long, men. Uh, a lot of you men, you talk about fasting. It's in the, the time between 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. That's fasting for a man. We don't do that too well. And so God is speaking to our bellies here and our hearts. If a man does not work, if a man is capable, and again, I'll qualify that, if a man is physically capable of working a job, should he still work? Absolutely. Should he work hard? Yes. He should see himself in the role that God has given him to be a provider of the home. What if a man chooses not to work? Is society bound to feed that person? I know this sounds harsh. If a man is an able-bodied person refuses to work, is society responsible to feed someone who refuses to work? My Bible says no. Why is the Bible so mean? Why is the Bible so cruel? How could God do that? Does God have no compassion? God has great compassion because the truth is when we feed somebody who's unwilling to work, who's capable of working, what are we doing? We're enabling them to continue in the living rebellion against God. We're continuing to enable them to live their worst life now. A man is never going to be more fulfilled in his life than when he is working a vocation, he's working hard with his hands, it will be fulfilling. How do I know this? Because that's how God created us to be. And when God created man and to work this way, God said it was good. And so we're actually enabling that person to live their worst life now. We're enabling them to stay in sin in a place where they're not working, they're not providing for themselves. It doesn't mean we don't, we don't help people from time to time. It doesn't mean we don't help them find jobs. It doesn't mean we don't have homeless shelters. But it means that we try to help get men into a place of productivity where God desires us to be. God doesn't want man just to live an indigent life. He doesn't man, want man even just to live a life where he's just pursuing his pleasures and wants. There's, a, there's kind of a concept today amongst masculinity. We've sort of traded in the study for the man cave. We've traded in the study where man is going to work hard, he's gonna get to know God, he's going to, where he takes joy in learning and productivity. And instead of that, you know, society has this idea that men are just supposed to be working for the weekend. And men sometimes get the idea that the purpose of my work is just to invest into myself and to have fun, and that's the purpose of my life. And we, if you will, we've exchanged our toys for bigger toys. 
Is the purpose of man's life just to, just to have fun? Now, we can have fun. I'm not a killjoy here. You, want, you have a, a jet ski or you have a camper. I'm not criticizing that. But is it possible sometimes for men to get consumed in trying to return to childhood, to a state where we're always just having fun? Understand what fun is and what play is. Play is simulated work. Look at what your kids do. What do you buy them for toys? When I was a kid, I used to get Hot Wheels. You're playing driving a car. When I was a kid, I used to get tractors. I'm pretending to farm. When I was a kid, I got toy guns. I'm pretending to fight, serve, and protect others. So toys are simulated productivity. And that's why it's fun. Our children are feeling productive before they can actually be, humanly speaking, productive. Even video games are that way, aren't they? Video games are simulated productivity. And I honestly believe that's why so many men, rather than women, can struggle obsessively with video games. And this isn't a diatribe against video games if you're into Pac-Man, you know, or Call of Duty or whatever your thing is. But understand the obsessive nature of it is often being fed because of an inner longing God placed in man's heart to be productive. And, and video games will often give you a simulated form of productivity. When it becomes a problem is when we start becoming unproductive in life because we're so busy and active playing games. So a man's truest satisfaction actually is learning to be productive. And that means to a degree we put some of the simulated productivity behind us, our childhood behind us. That's what Paul was referring to, 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He was talking about tongues, but he just, in talking about tongues, he was referring to a truism here. And he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when he became a man, what did he do? He put away, he gave up childish things. This is a word that means to place in a position of inactivity. That there are certain childish things about my life. It was just understood that children long to be adults. I think a lot of times today, kids don't want to be adults. That's why we have the term adulting. That term didn't exist when I was a child. But now I think people resent being an adult because they don't, they've been taught as a child that we have, we've enshrined childhood. And as parents, we long for our children to stay children, which is fine when they are children. But when did a Jew become an adult? 12 years old. And there's some of us who are still trying to recapture our childhood, and we're 25. Does God want us to look longingly at childhood in simulated productivity, or does God want us to be active, productive adults ourselves? He wants us to mature into active, productive adults. We, he says these childish ways where I look longingly at a time where I had no responsibility. It was all fun. It was just all investing in me. Paul says, I took that as a child and I put it away. I, it, it didn't belong to me anymore. I mean, I remember very distinctly the very day as a child that I put away my toys. It was in sixth grade, the summer of sixth grade. I was bored. And I remember going up to my room in this old 1980s bedroom with, a, remember the old headboards that every bed had? And I had all my toys lined up on this headboard. You know, I had little Transformers and G.I. Joes and all these other little robots and whatnot. And I had them decorated up in like this little panorama across my headboard. And I remember just walking up there, and I hadn't played with these toys in a while, and I just looked at them and as a kid, and I go, this doesn't really fit me anymore. I don't use these things. I don't desire these things. I, I long to trade my, my pretend productivity for real productivity. I want to change this Fisher-Price hammer out for a real hammer. I want to go out there and nail hammers into wood. I don't know what I'm building, but I just want to, just want to hit things with a hammer. And I want to trade out my toy gun for a real gun I, so I can hunt. I don't want a Fisher-Price fishing pole. I want to catch real fish. I want to do real productive things as a man. And I remember just looking at these toys and thinking, 
this doesn't identify me anymore. I don't long for those days, and I just put it all in a box, and I took it up to the attic, and it's there to this day, buried under a mountain of other things that nobody's ever opened up again. That's where my toys are. I just, there's a, just a day that showed up where I was like, I long to be truly productive. And in that productivity I found as a man, that's where I find my truest and purest sense of satisfaction in life. Not trying to recapture childhood, not trying to be a Disney adult. You've seen those? Okay, no, don't get mad at me. If you're, don't email me if you're one of these guys who loves Disney. I'm not saying you can't enjoy and appreciate what Disney is. But there's something out there called the Disney adult. And it's about a person who's trying to still live in their childhood. They're trying to enshrine their childhood. They're trying to return to that day where there were no cares in the world, no problems, and no required productivity. That's not where God has called men to live. He's called us to be laborers. And in doing so, we find our greatest joy and satisfaction. Number two, God has called us to be leaders. Now, yes, I realize women are also leaders, okay? And women can lead pretty much anywhere else they want in the world, but there are two institutions that God has created, that God doesn't give men the freedom to just say, hey, ladies, you go and do that. I'm going to sit here with this bag of Cheetos, you know, and watch Netflix. We don't get, let the ladies just take over those areas and say, you go ahead, you go on, do it. And those two areas are in the home and the church. God has called men to lead in these specific areas. This goes back to Genesis 2.16 for the home. And the Lord God commanded the man. Is God giving Adam the option He's not giving man options. There are certain things that God is commanding man. You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you've been in VBS church for very long, you understand that this is the first moral command that God gave humans. This is a spiritual command. This is a command to be obedient to God. And God gave that to man. Once again, is the woman created yet? Let's be careful. She's not. So God gave the command to work and to spiritually lead his family long before the woman ever came. Why didn't God wait for Adam and Eve to be together and then give them these commands? There would be confusion. Who is supposed to be leading this thing? Who is supposed to be initiating the command of God? See, God, God sees Adam by himself, and God gives the man the command to have the knowledge of God. God gives the man the command to lead his family in obedience to that knowledge of God. That's something that God still gives to us today. You say, well, where else in the Bible is that? Maybe you think I'm pushing Genesis 2 a little too far. I'll tell you right now, I'm not. By the way, you're going to see it in 1 Timothy 2 also. But this command for men to lead their homes is also found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 to 27. I'll read a portion of that. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife. That's the leader. In what way is the husband the head of the wife? He gives us an example. Even as Christ is the head of the church which is his body and is himself its savior. And then Christ does something for the church that man is supposed to do for his home, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And so man is not given the option of spiritual leadership in the home. God wants men to make sure that God is a priority in his family's life, whether it's his wife or kids. Now, men, you can't control your wife. Anybody tried that one before? Control your wife? How'd that turn out? We'll get a microphone out. Uh, you don't do that, but you can influence and you can lead by example. God calls men to be spiritual leaders of the home, even as Christ is. Sanctify, cleanse, and wash. That means that we take the word of God and we initiate spiritual growth in our family. We read the word of God. We pray with our families. We make sure that our families keep God a priority in coming to church. The reason that you're here, men, should be that you have made it a priority in the life of your wife and kids that they are here. 
However, there's a lot of men who have a drug problem, that their wife drug them to church. And, they, and they, the wife is the one initiating prayer. The wife is the one initiating coming to church. She's the one initiates the reading of the word of God. Men, if your wife, if you're just going along with what your wife wants you to do, is that leadership? If you're initiating nothing, you're leading nothing. Men are called to be initiators of spiritual growth, first in their own life, but in, and then being concerned that the spiritual growth is taking place in the lives of their wives and children. We wash, we cleanse, and we sanctify just as Jesus did. Now, when we talk about a male leadership of the home, I realize there's going to be people out there who are going to try to paint this broad caricature again of male leadership in the home, some dominant hyper-controlling, flip-the-monopoly-board-table kind of guy, you know, who just always has to be right, always has to have, be blindly obeyed. Is that spiritual leadership? No, because it says that we're to love our wives how? As Christ loved the church. We're to be the head of our wife as Christ is the head of the church. He doesn't treat us this way. Christ is gentle. He's compassionate. In fact, in Ephesians 5.25, Bible commands husbands, love your wives as... Christ loved the church. It's the word agape. It's not eros, physical love. It's not phileo, brotherly love. It's not storge love, which the Bible translates as natural affection. This is the word agape. It means how Jesus loved us. He loves us because of who he is. The Bible says that's how husbands love their wives. And he says, and they do something. He gave himself up for her. That's what Jesus did for the church. He gave himself up. He left heaven, the comforts of heaven. He came down to earth. He suffered for us. He died the worst possible death a human could, being beaten within, you know, within an inch of his life to the point where you couldn't recognize him, allowed men to drive nails into his hands and suffocate on his own juices because of you and I. He gave himself up for her. What does that look like for a man to do that? It means we put our needs and our desires aside and we make sure that our wife and our kids are taken care of first. We put their needs above our own. It's called servant leadership. It's called Christ-like leadership, that we put the needs of our family before our own needs. And so that biblically is what it looks like to lead. Doesn't mean we're always right. We're not Captain Von Trapp. We're Christ. Well, men are also called to lead in the church, and women also lead in many different avenues of the church, but the Bible does give some limitations to that. And I realize it doesn't play nice with our culture, and if you're watching any of the mainstream news, CBS, NBC, ABC, uh, you're hearing it right now, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But the spiritual headship of the man extends to the institutions of the church. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul says, I desire that in every place, so this is not just cultural, it's not just one church, he says, I desire that who should pray? Men should pray. Lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, you think, well, yeah, man, he's just talking about mankind. Well, this is the Greek word on air, which is referring to a male or a husband. Does it mean women can't pray in church? Absolutely not. But he wants to make sure that men aren't just leaving that to the ladies, which is really ironic because in prayer ministries, who heads up 90% of the prayer ministries around the world? It's the ladies. And it's not wrong for you to do it. But God wants men not to just relegate prayer to the position of a woman's ministry. He wants men to engage God meaningfully in prayer. Beyond this, God has called men to serve as pastors. Again, that's something the SBC has reaffirmed this last week. I don't know if you know it or not. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention has reaffirmed in their annual meeting in New Orleans this last week that churches 
are going to be served by male pastors. You say, well, that's misogynistic and chauvinistic and patriarchal, and what are all the other mean words we can say? Um, and initially, if you're just looking at culture, you would come to that conclusion, wouldn't you? Why didn't the Southern Baptist Convention come to that conclusion? Because the issue of male pastors is not a societal thing. Did the church cre the society create the church? Society did not create the church. Who created the church? God. It's Christ's body. And so the question of female pastors has nothing to do with women's qualifications. Frankly, women are more interesting to listen to. Women tell better stories. You know, women are very hard workers in the church. I wish I could turn this over to the ladies because, frankly, they do a great job. But I can't. Why not? Because this is not a cultural issue. This is a spiritual issue. The question we should be asking ourselves is not where are we as society, but what has God said? And the question is, is God clear when he said it? Well, I'll give you a few verses and I'll let you decide. He says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, this is the qualifications of a pastor. He says, this saying is trustworthy. And when he says trustworthy, he means this is not human opinion. This is not Paul sharing what he thinks is good and right. He says trustworthy that this is uh, an affirmation that the word of God is inspired by God himself. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, it's the Greek word episkopeo, epi meaning over, scope, to see, to look. Okay, so he doesn't actually use the term pastor here, but I want you to understand there are three terms that are used interchangeably in the Bible for the same office. Pastor refers to the fact that he feeds and protects the sheep. An elder, which just means that he is a mature one, that he is mature in the faith, that he fits these qualifications. And number three, that he is an overseer. An overseer is somebody that well, overseas. They, make, they, they look at the strategy of the church. They make sure that the church is accomplishing the mission of God. And so that is being discussed here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Who is it that is a pastor, elder, overseer? Who is it? Well, he gives us qualifications. He says, if you desire this office, you desire a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, and that's the overarching command of a pastor. He can't be someone that the people in the church and community go, really, that's your pastor? That guy cheated me in business last week. That's your pastor? He's got three wives. That's your pastor? He's got a mouth like a sailor, you know? So he has to be above reproach, and the first qualification he gives under above reproach is what? That he is to be the husband of one wife. It's that Greek word again, that nagging Greek word, on air. It's referring to a male, to a husband, literally. That he is to be a one-woman man. And so that this is talking about a man is indisputable hermeneutically. When you study the Bible, your only conclusion is that the pastor is a male. He doesn't give qualifications for females. He could... And he talks about females in, the, when he, in just a few verses later when he's talking about deacons, men and their wives, but he only talks about the men here, which makes it very, very clear when it comes to serving as a pastor, for whatever reason, God has chosen for men to lead. We say, well, maybe it's just pastor. Okay, fine. They can't serve as a pastor biblically, but what about, what about just women preachers? Just having a woman stand in like Beth Moore and some of these others who preach on Mother's Day. Is that, is that what we're supposed to do? Well, the Bible's even clear about that, 1 Timothy 2. In verse 12, just before he gives a qualification of the pastor in this pastoral epistle, Paul instructs Timothy. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Okay, so that's very clear that even in a public setting, I'm not talking about counseling. I'm not talking about just some instructional thing somewhere, but when we gather as God's body in this service, 
that God has asked the men, don't give up the leadership of the church. Don't give up the preaching. You need to stand up and you need to deliver the word. Now you say, well, what right does Paul have to say this? First of all, understand when 1 Timothy was written, this isn't Paul's opinion. It's not Paul's words. This is the word of God. Paul is inspired by God, which means God gave him the very words to speak. And so when God gives us, this isn't Paul's opinion, this is what the Bible says. And then he, but still he gives us an example. Why do we not have women preaching and exercising authority over a man? Verse 13. For, it means that the above argument stands upon these grounds. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so he's going back to creation. He's saying it's always been this way. God started out by giving men the responsibility to lead spiritually and to work hard. And he gave that to man before the woman was created because this is something that God wants men to do. This has nothing to do with valuing women because that's the argument you're going to hear. Women are second class, second tier, second tier, this and that. If they're not preaching or leading, what are they? But what have you communicated then to the 99.9% of the men who aren't preaching? What have you communicated to the 99.9% of the men who don't serve as a pastor? You're telling them that they're nothing unless they're leading. That's a worldly concept. You're not second tier just because you serve Kool-Aid to kids. You're not second tier just because you sit at the starting point desk. You're not second tier to God just because you do any number of the activities in the church. But what we do not do is we don't compromise what the word God clearly says. Number three here, we see that God has called men to be lovers. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, then the Lord God said, once again, this is scripture. This is what the Bible is saying. This is God's intention. It's not a cultural thing. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. Amen to that. I will make him a helper fit for him. You saw on Mother's Day, we brought out the big screw and the nut. That was the man and the woman. They're different from one another. Different, but corresponding too. They're meant to work together. They're nothing like one another. Not just physiologically, even emotionally. Men and women, we're nothing alike. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. It's a word that means to cling on to, to Cling. Men, you're supposed to be clinging, okay? To hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh means there that we, everything that is true of me is true of my mate. That we share in all things. That I don't talk to my wife and talk about my money and her money. I don't talk, I don't belittle her by, look, by lifting weights and going, here, here, you lift that. <laughs> Weak one. You know, we don't treat our wives like that and try to belittle them and, and try to focus on where we're strong and they're weak. Because guess what, men? Women are strong where you're weak too. That's what opposite and corresponding means. A bolt isn't worth a whole lot without a nut, okay? So we're opposite and corresponding too. We need a helper fit for us because she completes us. And so God calls us to be in a one flesh relationship. That means there's a certain tenderness about it. The Bible even tells us elsewhere that men are to love their wives as they do their own bodies. If you saw somebody out in the hallway beating themselves up, you know, you'd be wondering, there's, there's something wrong with this fellow. Somebody call 911, this guy's nuts. Nobody would treat their body in a harsh or cruel way. And in the same way, if we're one flesh, no man would ever treat his wife in a harsh or cruel way, whether physically or verbally. We don't treat our wives like this. That a man is called to be both soft and strong. Can a man be soft and strong? I mean, if Charmin can do it. I think we can do it, guys. We can be both soft and strong. Is God strong? Is God big? 
He's, God is, is, is greater than anything we could possibly imagine, and yet is God also compassionate? He absolutely is. In fact, we can read in Psalm 103, 13, as Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Compassion means it's an ability to put yourself into the life of somebody else, to feel what they feel. God says, fathers, men, we have that capacity. That we don't have to fit this macho stereotype that we don't feel feelings, that we don't feel what our children feel, we don't feel what our wife feels. We can be soft and strong. We can be compassionate. Jesus, is he strong? I mean, look what, look what he endured on the cross. But remind you, this is the man who made a whip of cords and overturned tables and threw men out of his father's house. And yet, we'll see in Matthew 23, Jesus will look at Jerusalem and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen does her chicks. And that's probably not something any man here has ever said. But if Jesus can say it, man, we can be soft and strong just like Jesus is. And so God calls us into a one flesh relationship with our wives to, be, uh, to share all things, to share our finances, to share our time. That our wives are not just the caretakers of the home and then we go off to do our own thing. We, we try to live a single life as a married man. We don't do that. We share all things. And I would argue also, men, that God calls us to share our hearts with our wives, that God calls us to enter into conversation with our wives, to allow ourselves to peel back that armor and to be vulnerable with our wives and to speak with them. Is that important, ladies, that your husband speak to you? You don't have to say amen. Don't throw any elbows. But, you know, it's important, men, that we talk to our wives, to relate to them. Women, they didn't get married because we knew how to change oil. Women, they didn't look, look at us and say, wow, this man's so good looking. I'd like about 50 more years with this guy. Guys, ladies didn't marry you for your money. I mean, look around. You know, we're not a bunch of Leonardo DiCaprio types, you know, good looking and lots of money. They married us because they desired a relationship with us. And so God calls us to view our wives as to build a one flesh relationship with her that we share even our hearts and our thoughts and be vulnerable with them. And that's really what it means to be soft and strong, that you can be strong, you can protect your family, you can work hard for your family, you can do woodworking and hunt deer, you can be Tim Allen and grunting while you attach motors to a garbage disposal, you can eat the still beating heart of a deer after you hunted it, okay? You might be just the most macho of men, but can you still be soft? I think God, you know, a good example of this, uh, for whatever reason, I remember from my seventh grade year, seventh grade lit class, we had to read a book called uh, Of Mice and Men. Anybody? John Steinbeck? No. Okay. It wasn't the comic strips. It was, it was Mice and Men. It's classic literature. But the re only reason I remember this, anything about this story at all is because I thought it, something this guy did was so bizarre. In this story, you have a man's man named Curly. Not like low Mary, Larry Moe and Curly, but Curly the cowboy. And he was a man's man. He was this, he's sort of seen as this macho aggressive type. He handles the hardest things that this ranch has to throw at him. But the reason I remember Curly is because Curly did something really unusual to me as a kid. It described very clearly that he had a leather glove that he would wear in one of his hands. don't remember which one, but a leather. Uh, and then he would fill it with Vaseline so that when he like touched his wife's face, it would be soft and tender. 
And so you had this tough macho guy who's like literally wrangling cattle and beating people up. But when he goes home, he recognizes, I'm not going to treat my wife in a harsh way like I may do other men or other cows or uh, ranch hands. I'm not going to treat my wife in that way. She deserves a certain sensitivity. Does the Bible teach that men need to be sensitive with their wives? Absolutely. The Bible talks about several places. Men, you know, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to them as a weaker vessel, not less valuable, but not made of the same stuff as you. Colossians 3.19 reminds us, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That we don't shout them down, we don't treat them poorly, we don't be dismissive toward them, we don't belittle them in any way, that we are not harsh with them. This word harsh it can actually be translated to embitter. Men, don't embitter your wives against you through your harsh treatment of them. Can that happen? That through harsh treatment, does that, can that ever have an ability to affect your soul and make you a harsh person? It sure can. I mean, the Bible's very clear about that. In many places, I can go to Proverbs 22, 24. He says, no, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Why? lest you learn his ways. You see, when you're, when you're friends with angry, wrathful, complaining, bitter, backbiting people, will that have an effect on your heart? It absolutely does. What if you live with that person? Men, is it possible that if you, you know, there's some men who maybe, maybe you feel like you live with a contentious woman, with an angry woman, with a fretful woman, anxious, just frustrating, and you just don't enjoy her, and that's why you work in the garage all day and work overtime and join a bowling league. Maybe you feel like that. Is it entirely possible, men, that with some of our ladies, that if they are embittered towards us, there might be some potential that through our harsh treatment of them and trying to treat a woman like a man, that maybe we've embittered their heart toward us? that maybe our angry ways have rubbed off on her. Is that possible? I'm not saying it's every time, but I think it's a good question to ask yourselves, men. If you're not enjoying the relationship you have with your wife, is it possible that I've contributed to that? What do we do? You be like Curly. You get a glove full of Vaseline. You, know, you get soft, men. You get gentle toward them. Unfortunately, with men, a lot of times we're better with dogs than we are people. You know, we understand a dog. We see a dog. We see an angry dog. We see a, a, a vicious dog. We see a snarling dog. Your first thought is not, boy, what a hateful, mean dog. I hate that dog. What's your thought? Who has treated you so poorly that you so mistrust me in this way? And so you see this dog, and your initial thought is, I know that deep down this dog wants to be my best friend because that is all dogs. He wants to be in a good relationship with me. And so maybe you're even inclined to look past his snarling, his anger, his snapping at you, and you might still try to befriend this dog. And so what do you do? You approach the dog slowly. You don't make jerky movements. You behave in a predictable way. And then you don't yell at the dog. Hey, dog, you want to be my friend? You know, you speak softly to the dog. You speak gently with the dog. You speak quietly with the dog. Maybe you give the dog a gift, you know, throw it a, a, a steak or something. I don't know some kind of meat, and you know you'll make friends with that dog, and pretty soon that dog will let you pet him, and you're gentle. You don't just, you know, treat the dog like that. You know, you're soft, and you're gentle, and then over time, when you repeat this activity, he's not going to be your friend right away, right? But over days and weeks and months, you might see this dog's heart turning back to you as a man, right? All I'm saying is, men, treat your wife like a dog, 
That's going to be a fun sound bite, won't it? Somebody put that on Facebook. Men, treat your wife like a dog. Maybe she's, maybe she's upset. Maybe she's angry. And she may be unjustified, but you know what? She might be justified. It may be that she has too much pressure in her life. We've allowed her life to become too busy, too full of stress, too much of difficulty. It may be that we have not told her we love her. We've not been gentle with her. We've not spent time with her. And then we wonder why she's embittered. What do we have to do? We can turn this around, guys. We can spend time with them. We can approach them slowly and gently. We can speak softly and not harshly. We can consider their needs. Now, you probably don't throw a raw steak in front of your wife, but there are other needs that our wives have that we can look into. We can be compassionate and feel for them and provide things for them and over time build that relationship back and then all the while discover that deep down within that woman was always man's best friend. That's what she wants. There's no woman here who ever got married and said, I cannot wait to nag this man till the day he dies. No woman ever got married to a man hoping to live in a frustrated, angry relationship with a man. She wants to be your best friend. And ladies, deep down, men want it too, but we just don't always know how to do it. So let's be patient with one another as we, as we become what God has called us to be. Men, God has called us to be laborers, enjoying productivity. God has called us to be leaders, to initiate spiritual development in our homes and our lives, and he has called us to be lovers, tender, compassionate, soft, and strong. Let's be that this Father's Day. Our God, we thank you this morning as we have studied your word, as we pray. Lord, this is a high standard that you have called us to, to be like Christ. To love our wives as Christ loved the church is just a it's beyond us. But we know that through the strength of your Holy Spirit and through conversion, through the truth of your word, that if we'll allow it to shape our hearts and our thinking, that you can guide us as we guide our families. That we can speak to our families and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Lord, I pray that for every man here, that they would experience the joy of true productivity in life. That you would help us to work hard and not just work for the weekend, for fun and play, but that you would help us to work to be productive and to find joy and productivity. Help us to find joy in initiating growth and spiritual health in our homes and in the church. Help us to see that as a purpose of our life and not just earning money. And God, help us to be compassionate, to get beyond this rough exterior that many of us as men have and to allow ourselves to be compassionate, to feel what our wives feel, to feel what our children feel, to be a a soft and yet strong father. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.